it's funny because I mean, like I was talking about the whole fear thing, like people, it's a huge hurdle. The whole nudity thing is a huge hurdle for people. But once they cross the hurdle, it's almost like, you know, with the clothing comes off, you know, all their other defense mechanisms as well. And usually they just open up and we have great conversations about whatever. I just talk to people and get them feeling comfortable in the environment that we're in. And, you know, in that process of interaction, you know, we, we absolutely build a relationship and the relationship is definitely comes out in the photographs. The goal isn't to live forever. The goal is to create something that will. Welcome to Perspective, a podcast for wedding craves, where we sit down with special guests and talk about our many years of experience in the wedding industry so that you can learn from us and grow your wedding business. Today on this episode of Perspective, we're talking to Jeremy Simon, a specialist in the art of black and white film photography in a world saturated by digital imagery. Jeremy has a family portrait studio based in Philadelphia, focusing on maternity, newborn, family and dog portraiture in the style that echoes the glory days of black and white film photography in the first half of the 20th century. We'll be talking all about Jeremy's creations and hopefully gather a little bit of insight as to how he approaches his studio work and we'll continue the discussion on censorship on social media. This episode is, of course, sponsored by Wajak and for a limited time by Beans.ie. So, Greg, what's in our cups today? We got our new delivery through yeah, from Beans.ie. Oh, so, so the roaster this month is Harkin Coffee. And they're from Vancouver in yeah. British Columbia. Look. And I've chosen the spring blend oh. for obvious reasons, because it's spring right now. Yeah. Uh, and the notes on this one are... A really unique blend, perfect for filter coffee or an adventurous espresso, juicy mouthfeel and lots of depth, bright and floral. Ooh. Yeah. So we brewed it up in the Chemex, so we're going with filter, but now that I've read that, I definitely want to try this on an espresso at some point. Yeah, I had no idea. Give and me it's, that over, I need to d- pour mine. Oh, sorry. Oh my God, I'm so selfish. Thank you. And uh, look, t- top marks for packaging. I know we're, I mean, I know you're a sucker for packaging, so am I. That is top notch right there. What what a class design. And uh, we were actually given these beans by beans.ie, our sponsor on today's episode. As photographers and filmmakers and business owners, we know the power of stories and beans.ie do too. They started because there were so many stories to tell about the world of coffee and not just about the regions or varieties, but about the people behind the beans, the roasters and us, the drinkers. This is the most flexible coffee subscription that we've ever used, showcasing some of the top roasters around the world who bring something different to your table. We've been, if, if you've been listening to us, it will be like years that Greg and I have been talking about what we've been drinking at our podcast table. And now you can join us. Create your own monthly subscription from an ever-changing list of beautiful coffees. And because you are our best friends, we're hooking you up with an awesome promo code. If you use promo code PERSPECTIVE15, you get 15% off your first order. That is PERSPECTIVE15 to get 15% off your first order. For coffees with stories, send straight to your door. Slightly butchered. And we're joined by Germany today. Hello, Germany. How are you? G- Germany? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Germany. The whole Germany? country. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jeremy. Yeah, Fuck that intro. Close enough. It's Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy. Oh, God. Um... 
but whatever, you know, um, <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. Um, <laughs> That's because after I'm all those great. words. <sighs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, it's too many syllables. Mm-hmm. I should just change my name to Bob. <laughs> How are you doing, Bob? <laughs> doing great. <laughs> How about you, Fred? Yeah, uh, so. Perfect. Perfect over here. <laughs> now that yeah, my last name is actually the same as your first name. It's Simon. Yeah. And uh, when I lived in England for a few years, um, because it's a much more common name in England than it is in the U.S., hmm. um, people just defaulted to it. They just, you know, people call me over there. He called me Simon all the time because I guess it just confuses everybody that I have two first names, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever you guys want to say. There is also a culture over here. I don't know. Maybe it's the, the, the boarding school part of my life where they, they talk to you using your surname. Hey, Ferguson, what's up, man? Well, I mean, it's an interesting cultural difference. I mean, Americans, I think in general, I mean, it's, you can kind of see the difference in, in the way that we like um, venerate our, our uh, uh, TV show heroes. Like everybody, all the cops here venerate Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. um, which is why they're such um, a-holes. Um, but the... Uh, the cops in England all venerate Sherlock Holmes, you know, and it's a kind of like is an overall view of the whole culture. Like Americans, it seems like are trying to be cool. And that's kind of what America is all about. Um, English are trying to be clever. And, uh, you know, so um, I mean, that's a vast generalization and it's not true all the way across the board, <laughs> but everybody that you meet. But generally speaking, I think it's a pretty good, you know, um, and over there, I found that to be, I mean, even though there's a lot of uh, police violence and brutality, mm. cops here are just categorically uh, the guys that were the bullies in school and now they have guns. Um, but in, in England, they're all just like, seem super polite and friendly. I mean, it might just be the whole culture in general, but um, yeah, I, I noticed, it, noticed that difference. Yeah, I've, I've, not spent, I've not really spent enough time in the States to be able to have a comparison? I've always just been a good boy all my life, so I've not had to interact with the police much. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, yeah. Words of wisdom for Greg. Just, just, be, a good, just be a good boy. Yeah, yeah see, I, I thought you guys were all like on train spotting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we are. <laughs> no, so are you, are you drinking anything over there? Um, I'm pretty much on, on coffee all the time. All the time. Um, I like it. Yeah, I bought an old, uh, like from the 70s, a restaurant espresso machine because I saw it on eBay and the price was good. Um, yeah, speaking speaking of drinking, you shouldn't do that when you're on eBay. Um, but anyway, I ended up with this espresso machine that was like fire engine red and it, was, it didn't work. So um, I had a neighbor of mine who takes apart old cars. Um, he saw it and was like, I'll fix it for you. And just he took it for like eight months and brought it back to me all polished up and ready to go. And, and then I plugged it in. And when you have a restaurant express machine within like five feet of you at all times, it's kind of hard to, to not drink it all the time. So that's. Are you, are you generally quite good with your measurements or is it kind of all kind of programmed for you? Um, It's, we have to get a separate grinder and um, no, it's all by feel. Yeah. Just fill it up until it looks right and tap it down and um off you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I roll um, as well. I know Greg Greg likes to weigh everything 
and is very methodical in that regard. But I'm just like, get that coffee into me right now. Just tap, yeah, totally. Tap I mean, it down it, as quick as I can. Get it in the machine. Get it in my mouth. I don't have time to deal with them. Uh, a scale. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're busy. We're busy. We're busy people. Greg, that's the whole point of the coffee. Get back to work, man. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. I'm trying to remember the first time I actually came across you, and I, I've I've probably got to. Um, thank Kelly and Emma uh, from their photography and womanhood uh, clubhouse room. I am pretty sure that was the first time. Uh, yeah, I think I, we're the two, the only two blokes in there. So yeah, I mean that was, <laughs> and they're like, "What are you guys doing in our womanhood conversation?" <laughs> we we're like, "Oh, we were just curious about, curious about." Yeah, no, yeah, we were both, we were, we were both in there that day. I think I remember, I remember when you were on there, and we, I forget what we were talking about, but I do remember the first time that we made. Um, mm. and they run a really great room over there. They I do. Going over there. Yeah. I, I think I say it on every episode of the podcast, but it is my favorite room. It's absolutely yeah. my favorite room. So yeah, it's fantastic. And they're joining us today in, in the audience. So thank you very much, Emma and Kelly. Hey, Emma and Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so you're based out of Philadelphia, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. But you touched on earlier that you spent some time in the UK. So how long ago was that? Or how was your time in okay, the UK? So Actually, I'm from, I don't know, do you know where Denver, Colorado is? I'm actually from Boulder, which is next right. to Denver, oh, basically. Yeah. Um, my father's a professor, um, and it's a college town, idyllic um, population of about 100,000. So it's like a, a smallish city in America. Um, and I opened up my photography studio in Denver, which is a bigger city, but it's still in the middle of America. And... Um, I had originally uh, wanted to be a photojournalist and then ended up taking a few classes at the local art institute to learn studio lighting. And then I ended up going all the way through the program. And by then I had had two kids and uh, two little girls and was photographing them and the playgroup friends. And then um, <clears throat> next thing you know, um, that's like my speciality. And plus, you know, being the father of three daughters, it's kind of hard to get away from the idea of like, you know, woman and, and womanhood mm. and, and um, the beauty of, of being a parent. I mean, there's so many beautiful things in the life of parenthood, you know, especially in the intimate environment. And um, so I, I started like focusing on that. And then a woman who owns a maternity store um, came in pregnant with twins was like, I just came across your work. I would love to hire you. I'm like, you don't have to give me anything. Whatever you want is yours. So I, I just took, like, I did three shoots with her. I framed everything. I put them up in her store. And then she just started sending me people, like, literally everybody that would walk through the door. I mean, we became, we came, became really good friends in the process. But she, she would actually be, I mean, she's a salesman type anyways. I think to have that kind of retail store, you kind of have to be that kind of pushy salesman type. Mm -hmm. But uh she, uh, everybody would come through the door. She'd be like, Oh, you're gorgeous. You have to call my friend, Jeremy. He will make you look so amazing. And, you know, so next thing you know, I'm shooting pregnancy, maternity, uh, I mean, maternity and newborns, uh, left and right. And, and at the time I opened my studio, I was, um, I came out of a program that was all film based and, um, I spent my, you know, pretty much any chance I could in school, I took a photography class just so that I could have access to the dark room. So I spent my entire childhood in the dark room. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, and then they are coming out with this digital stuff and I tried it and I compared it to the print that I got in the dark room. And that's what it came down to was I, I just didn't like, I mean, it was, it wasn't even a fair fight at the time. I mean, it's gotten <laughs> a lot better since then, uh-huh. but I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to spend that much money on a different camera so that I can have worse pictures. Um, you know, so I kept shooting film uh-huh. and developed, developed my style, you know, and then, you know, the market completely changed and the maternity store went out of business and um, all the maternity people had grown up and become um, families. And instead of doing like all these motherhood photography, I was doing Christmas card shots, basically families come in or coming in around Christmas time. And, and that's what it was moving towards. And it's, it's harder to make, it's actually harder to make a living because when people buy, come in to do the maternity and, and, uh, uh, newborn shots, they end up getting tons of pictures from both shirts because the, the, the floodgates of creativity are so opened up with that, mm-hmm. that I can just get a lot more variety of stuff. And, you know, so you sell a lot more photographs and, you know, the business went from doing really well to, uh, you know, doing marginally well, and it was getting worse and worse. And I was not doing the kind of photography that I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I need to go someplace that has a real luxury market because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who would spend 7,000 pounds on a couch. Those are the people that I want hiring me for photography, um, not the people in Denver. Um, so we went to England and ironically, right after we left, Denver blew up and became like the place where everybody wanted to you know, come to because they legalized marijuana there. Everybody's like, sign me up. So my timing was horrible, but um, I ended up in, in England with a three-year entrepreneurial visa. Um, we lived in Peckham, South London, oh, which yeah. is, um, you know, butting up to Dulwich. And we, we were there because that's where all the schools were for, we had three daughters in tow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got a skinny Victorian, cool skinny Victorian rent, rental in Peckham, walking distance to Peckham Rye Park, um, a short jaunt to their schools. I got a studio in um, East Norwood or West Norwood. It was West Norwood, which is on the other side of Dulwich. If you guys know London Um, and uh, in a biscuit factory for 800 pounds a month, which is unheard of cheap in, in London. Um, And uh, you know, 14 foot pane glass windows going all the way up to the ceiling I had a coffee roaster underneath me and all kinds of workshops around, which is why the rent was so cheap. But I had, you know, it backed up to a graveyard, you know, and the English really do their graveyards really well. Uh, It was, (laughs) it was, it was a dream. I had my dark room in the space and, uh, you know, but then the visa died and they, they kicked me out. So um, I had to figure out where to go, but I didn't want to go back to Denver. Um, So we looked at, at, New York. New York is like ridiculous. And there's no like the equivalent of Peckham in New York is like the Bronx or Queens. And it's not the same. It's um, first for for starters, the transportation isn't as well connected. So if you're like living in Queens, for example, Mm -hmm. and you want to go to Brooklyn, which is where a lot of the action is happening, you have to take a train into New York and then back out to Brooklyn, even though it's one borough over and you could get there in 15 in, in 10, 10, 15 minutes. If you have a car, it'll take you an hour and a half by train. Um, so it's just like the, the trains and, 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 you know, people always in London would be like, Oh, the tubes are so dirty. Come to New York. 
you know, <laughs> um, we know how to do what we, we do dirt right here. Yeah. Um, you know, you want grit? We got it. Um, awesome. so uh, speaking of grit, um, you know, affordable and still commutable. We ended up in, in Philadelphia because it's a, it, it's a cool, quirky American city. Um, I love the fact that it still has like mom and pop shops all over the place. Um, I saw it has good coffee on every corner. Um, that's what, what honestly, like when I saw that, I was like, where do I sign? <laughs> that's um, it's all about the coffee. Even though I had, even though I have it in my kitchen, but I thought, okay, they, at least they think in the same direction as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we got it in our house. It's totally affordable. Um, I have a weirdly large basement in here. I think they did bootlegging or something down there because it has high ceilings, not really big enough to be a studio, but uh-huh. it's like the nicest dark room I have yet. And in the process, I built like eight dark rooms. Um, yeah. So here I am and I'm all set up to, to get, get situated in New York. And I was in the process of doing that. And then of course the pandemic hit. Mm. So that's, that's where I'm at. I'm trying to, trying to rebuild everything in New York and, what I've been doing is that I've actually been trying to do um, uh, virtual photography. Um, yeah. I just I just did a model call and I had a bunch of a bunch of different virtual shoots and you know so the idea is okay so here I am with twenty thousand plus dollars worth of like studio equipment and darkroom gear and camera equipment and Hasselblads and Leicas and all kinds of other stuff <laughs> and the best picture that I've made to date comes from some woman's iPhone seven in Tunbridge Wells or something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, I was doing, been doing all these virtual shoots and I'm idea an exhibit from all the, all the, uh, um, virtual shoots of, uh, you know, intimate motherhood, uh, as the top topic, mm-hmm. um, and bring them back down into my dark room and try to make some actual, um, cause it's pretty easy to take a digital file and make it into a film process. You just have to make, um, your, your digital image into a piece of film, which is as easy as putting a piece of acetate into your printer uh-huh. and printing it on that. And then you make what the equivalent of a contact print is. You basically put that on a piece of paper, uh, put a piece of glass on top of it and turn the light on and expose it. And you've got yourself a print. So that's, I mean, it's it's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically <laughs> yeah. the idea. Um, so I mean, that that pretty much brings us to date. Yeah, I'm well. I am going to ask you about your digital session, uh, your digital sessions. Man, I cannot speak today, Jeremy. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I I wanted to get your thoughts. Obviously, you're in a, a predominantly female led house. Uh, does it get annoying when people go, "Oof, that must be hard living, man." Must be hard. Yeah, that it it's it it is. Um, well, I mean, it's funny because it's kind of a gauge of uh, um, how patriarchal a person is, like, mm-hmm. or how woke they are, you know. Because you get you get that a lot from like um, my father in law, for example, owns a trucking co- company, um, is you know sort of middle middle American evangelical Christian. Um, uh, is about as American as you get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I tell him how much, I'm constantly telling him how much I enjoy my daughters. And he's just like, oh, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. 
But this is a guy who has a comfortable chair and sits in it most of the time watching sports. So mm-hmm. how would he? That's all he knows. Um, you know, so yeah, I, yeah, it's annoying, but at the same time, like, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Do you think being surrounded by so many women in your house gives you a different perspective and has an effect on your work? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, because I have three daughters and uh, my wife is very uh, strong-willed, um, <laughs> and they all are. You know, they're all strong, independent, you know, beautiful, intelligent, quirky women. And and more than anything, it's about the people that they are, you know. I mean, and that's that's really what it comes down to is, um, you know, that it, it's, it's definitely a, a, a feminine based household. But, at, you know, at the same time, I think the fact that I have not just women, but you know, young women in my house who are, are very quick, um, socially to, to, you know, to know what's going on. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I think they're great people. I wouldn't trade them. I wouldn't trade them for anybody else. Yeah. Although I bet you if I had a boy in the house, I would, I would feel the same way, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny. So I've got, I've got two boys and, and my youngest, uh, is a girl and, um, yeah, I, I, I love their, they're just all so different and I love it. Totally. I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, go on. No, no, no. I was, I was, I was going to totally kill the vibe and do a Q and a reminder. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> so, yeah. I'll just kill the whole, the whole conversation and the good vibes that we're having, the good flow and talk about our Q and a reminder, <laughs> which at the <laughs> end of the podcast, you guys can st- stick up your hand and ask, uh, ask our guests anything you want but yeah, you can also uh, listen back to that Q&A section if you support us on Patreon, which, which we've just launched. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate. And that gets you access to all the Q&As that we do if you're not joining us live. But if you are joining us live on Clubhouse, thank you very much. However, Greg, hit that button because I want to get to know Jeremy a little bit more. We've um, gotten to know you a little bit, and I've obviously given you a little introduction. But for our listeners, who are you, and what do you do? Um, I am a uh, fine art portrait photographer, and what that means is that um, you know I make pictures that are very distinct in the style, in the sense that you look at them and you know that they're coming from me and my studio. Um, and I think that's what really defines something as art is the, the tie to the artist. Um, but, uh, I also make portraits of people in that, that the process is collaborative. So, um, while I'm shooting them, I'm not just going in and trying to cookie cutter them into my style, but I'm actually trying to get them to come out and emerge into the photograph, um, regardless of how that is. Um, and so the process of what I do is, is really about, not about capturing, getting people to look a certain way or have a certain vibe, but rather to get them to be themselves and really mm-hmm. the best versions of themselves. Cause that's what I think good portraiture is all about. And, you know, so when you come into my studio or if I come into your environment and I'm taking pictures, what I try to do is to, to make you really, uh, you know, come into who you are. And hopefully that happens in front of the camera because if it does, I can capture it. So that's pretty much what I am, who I am, I have no idea. 
So I'll have to just let you guys figure that out as you get to know me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> For our listeners out there who maybe haven't even, they haven't even dipped their toe into the world of film, do you think they would learn quite a lot from dipping their toe into film? Absolutely. Okay, so here's my take on... You know, you get all these people who are talking about, like, I'm a film photographer or I'm a digital photographer. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, um, like, when you, when you first start learning film photography, you realize, oh, well, there's 35 millimeter film photography. There's medium format film photography. There's large format film photography. <laughs> there's, you know, old school collodion photography with glass plates. There's, there's a million different directions you can go. And each of those different processes are called a camera format. You know, when you see, when you hear somebody say, I shoot in medium format, it means they're using a film that's square and fairly large. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so I think it's no different with digital. Like, for example, if you use um, a DSLR versus somebody that uses their phone, you're still creating digital images, but the differences, the di- images are going to be completely different. And I would consider all those things of a camera format. So um, in the same way where people are out with their phones thinking, oh, I wish I had a real camera right now. You do have a real camera. It's, it's different from your DSLR. And there are actually pictures you can get with that camera that you'd never be able to get with your phone, with your uh, DSLR. Hmm. Um, and, you know, so when you actually use a different camera f- format, it informs your work differently in the same way that if you were to show up to a shoot with your phone, you know, it might elicit a pretty uh, hilarious reaction, but um, you would end up with different, different pictures, but they wouldn't necessarily be worse. They'd be, you know, you have different challenges and different things that you have to work around. And those things will actually inform your work in a different way. And you may like the way that it does. So, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Most people have, um, well, I'm not sure about, if you're shooting Nikon, you could get a Nikon DSLR or Nikon SLR single lens reflex for like 50 bucks and your lenses will already work on it. Mm. Um, if you don't, you could probably pick up a cheap film camera. You can get one. You know, it's not expensive. It's not hard. Um, you think differently when you're shooting film because you can't look at what you have. You have to actually, um, you know, think in f-stops and shutter speeds. Yeah. And that will actually help your digital work as well. Like if you're thinking about, you know, and everything that you do adds to it. You're not, nothing that you try will hurt you. And if you try and fail, you'll actually learn more than if you try and succeed anyway. So um, I would absolutely encourage anybody out there to go, you know, try something in the film world. And honestly, there's a, if if you're interested in darkroom work, um, there are, is a process of, um, uh, where, where Polaroid camera Polaroid used to make a film that, that included the, uh, uh, negative and the pop positive inside of it. And, uh, there's a guy that has brought that film back, which means that you can, uh, take a picture with this film with a view camera, which you can also get for a song. And if you really want to learn photography, try using a camera that you can't look at while you're taking the picture. Um, that will really get you, get you, uh, into the, you have to use on a tripod, um, that will make you slow down and it will, it'll change your work and, and it could change it for a positive way. But, you know, the thing about this film is that you can take the, take the Polaroid, you pull the Polaroid and then the piece of film gets processed in the Polaroid. Um, 
you have to put it in uh, PhotoFix, which is easy to get. I mean, Ilford makes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually recommend that you use it with Ilford. And, you know, there, without going into a dark room, you have a four by five sheet of film that you can scan or you could go into the dark room and make a print with. You can make a contact print out of. Um, but it's also it also has all the, the goopiness from the chemistry. And it really looks different from anything that you could ever get from digital. So, I mean... If, if people are really interested in learning film, before you actually build a darkroom, I would say get a view camera, get a Polaroid back for the view camera, and then look into that Polaroid film and mess around with it because you don't really need a lot of, a lot of darkroom kit to be able to do these prints. Hmm. And honestly, if you brought one of those things to a shoot and did a couple frames with it, I think people would be really impressed anyways. They'd be like, oh, wow, look at that. Um, uh, you know, so, yeah, I'm not known for my short answers. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's great. We love yeah. that on here. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, it's awesome. So what What do you think? You talked there about how with film photography, you have to know your settings and sort of pre-visualize how the photograph's going to look in your head. And I guess a lot of people nowadays with the modern mindset is just to snap away and then look at the back of the camera and go, okay, I need to adjust for that underexposure or something. Mm. So that's probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks with getting into film. But what other things do you think hold people back from either trying out film or playing around with it? I think that's just it. I think it's a, I think it's a fear. And the fear is something that, you know, um, fear comes when people make a big deal out of something in your head. And the question is, is it something that you should be making a big deal about? And the answer is no, it's not that, uh, you know, so people are afraid of, uh, of the settings, uh, of, of having to know their settings. I mean, a lot of the cameras have an A button, which is the, uh, you know, it's all the same settings on your other, on your other camera. Um, you just can't see it. So you have to trust that your camera is doing it right. And it might not be, you get the, might get the film back and be like, Oh, that wasn't right. So, but then you learn from that as a feedback loop. So yeah, you know, I mean, I wouldn't expect glorious results right out of the shoot, but mm. you know, if you already knew how to do it, why would you be doing it? Yeah. So I have to say, like, I feel like I've kind of just discovered you as a creator only having maybe a couple of months, a couple of months, uh, but your nudes are like amazing. They're, they're, there's a, a, a rawness to them and a beauty. Your animal portraits are I don't know, regal is maybe a word I'm thinking about in my head. And I love that you play with a sense of humor in your family and even your kid portraits as well. Like there's just such a great tone about them. And I really, you know, there's like a, a real sense that you like to, to play with tone. Is, is yeah. this something that, is this something that you go after intentionally or is that just something that, you know, you're working with kids and you're working with dogs, families, it's all kind of going on very quick. So you're just having to get the content. Is it intentional? Yeah, yeah, totally intentional. Well, it's a feedback loop. I mean, mm-hmm. like, um, and I think this is, a, this is kind of a, uh, has to do with more with my influences than, than anything else. Like, um, I forget the, the, there's a famous figure of speech by some painter who said that uh, when a painter draws a tree, he's not imagining a tree. He's imagining another painter's painting of a tree, you know, and that's kind of like, that's kind of like what, similar. Like when I'm shooting, I have, I have all the, the people, I, I always go, go and look at photo books, look at photographs and the people's whose photographs I'm looking at are, um, you know, 
a lot of times photographers from the, the mid to early part of the 20th century before the, the style went editorial before photojournalism really kicked in. Um, and you know, a lot of people modern in modern times are photographing more editorial style, like magazine, they, they're emulating, you know, what they see in magazines or maybe what they see on the other Instagram accounts. But, you know, um, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to, you know, em, emulate a certain style. So when I'm doing, um, dog portraits, um, I'm, I'm going for, um, interesting frozen moments in time. Mm-hmm. And you usually don't even see them when they're happening. In fact, you, you pretty much are in survival mode when you're photographing a toddler next to a dog, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, um, you put the camera on the tripod. And I think if you're going to photograph dogs, you have to have the camera on the tripod because, you have to be able to run away from your cam, your set where your camera is, get everything set up. And then you have to get the dog to sit where it's going to sit. And it's not going to do it unless you can captivate its attention. So you're getting like a foot away from the dog and you know, you're like, stay, stay, stay. And as you back up to the camera, then they drop the kid in. And then you try to get the kid's attention while you're getting the dog to stay. And you know, the parents leave and are like, I don't think we got anything. You know, that was the worst experience of my life. You know, people are always like, oh, yeah, the photo shoot should be a good experience. It's never a good experience if you're photographing a two-year-old next to a dog. Just get used to that, (laughs) you know. And, um, you know, but what's interesting about it is amid all that chaos, you have these moments that are just hilarious. And, you know, out of 20 pictures, you might have one good one. But that good one is usually pretty good because, you know, if it all comes together, it's, it's, it's usually... You know, you're freezing something that you wouldn't normally freeze. Um, but then when I'm editing, I'm also looking for uh, composition, you know, because ultimately that's what really drives artwork is how, how what are the lines doing? Mm-hmm. Where are the lines? And that's kind of a common thread, I think, between all everything that I shoot is it always comes back to composition and then lighting feeds into composition. Like, you know, that was one of the things. I mean, when I was learning photography, I started off as a photojournalist and a guy that I was working with was like, oh, just take a studio lighting class. I'm like, give me 15 minutes with the studio lights and I'll figure it out. Uh, you know, and then I ended up taking me two years to go through the program and I'm still learning about lighting. Like lighting is, is, is one of those things that it's your strongest tool in your toolkit. I mean, photographers talk a lot about cameras and lenses and it's, it's really about, you know, knowing how to deal with light. Um, and not just studio light, but any kind of light. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, stylistically, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about all the all the artists that, that insp- inspire me with motherhood photography. That's especially true because um, y- y- most of those are nudes anyway. Mm-hmm. So if if I do it, you know, kind of nude portraiture in an editorial style, it it looks like, uh, you know, Irving Penn, which isn't bad, you know, but it's it's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of you can go from there and I'll do that picture as the proverbial cover your ass shot, you know, portraity shot, somebody, you know, beautifully lit, dark, darks, light lights, everything lit perfectly. And then I go exploring, try to make, you know, and, and again, it comes back to composition and because you're dealing with, you know, this beautiful round belly or, you know, baby skin, which is in and of itself looks unworldly. Um, it almost has a papery quality and you have all this texture and you have all this, like all these things that you can use to make an interesting photograph that wouldn't be there, you know? And plus when you have clothing, it adds a narrative. It becomes about, you know, 
what is it that they're projecting with their clothing? You know? Yeah. Are they a family of cat burglars on their way to rob the bank? Is that why they're wearing black turtlenecks? Like what, you know, like, so, you know, working with people's clothes is, can be, can be difficult anyways, because yeah. people mostly don't have a clue. Um, y- you know, so, um, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to make everything come together, I'm definitely pulling from, you know, how can I make this look like everything that I, I love and adore in photography? And I'm working backwards from that. You know, I'm imagining it up on the wall. I'm not imagining it in a, in a, in an album or on an Instagram page. I'm imagining it next to a painting in a room filled with paintings, mm. you know, you know, that, and that's, and that's ultimately what, what I think, you know, motivates me. That's, that's what gives, gives me a charge. It gives me a thrill is when I make something that feels like that. That feels better than almost anything. Yeah, you you, sort of, you talked about the sort of technicalities of making images, yeah, like the composition and the lighting being important. But in your work, I feel like it, one like relationship building must be one of the biggest things with this sort of client. And we talked to this, we talked about this with Kelly Quinn as well about how how you get that sort of relaxed and comfort between you and the client for them to open up and show those emotions and get nude and stuff. So how, how are you going about making them feel comfortable? It's, it's funny because I mean, like I was talking about the whole fear thing, like people, it's a huge hurdle. The whole nudity thing is a huge hurdle for people. Mm-hmm. But once they cross the hurdle, you know, it's almost like, you know, with the clothing comes off, you know, all their other defense mechanisms as well. And Usually they just open up and we have great conversations about whatever. I mean, you, you've probably figured out by now that I just never shut up. So that's pretty much my tactic. I just talk to people and get them feeling comfortable in the environment that we're in. And, you know, in that process of interaction, you know, we, we absolutely build a relationship. Um, and the relationship is definitely comes out in the photographs. Um, although, you know, I could, I could, I've taken, pictures that are in my portfolio of people that I had no chemistry with. And I've had people that I've had incredible chemistry with that disappointingly, I didn't feel like we got anything that I could put in my portfolio. So it's not universal across the board, but at the same time, I, I feel like that, that, that is an integral part of the work. And I think you can really tell when people are comfortable or not in their having their picture taken, you know, and whether somebody's nude or not, that's your job as a portrait photographer. It's your job to get people to stop, acting to stop pretending like there's something else to stop giving that stupid smile that they keep in their hip pocket that they bring out when the waiters brought in the wrong dish like that is not working for photographs Mm. um you know it's if they're smiling and they feel it and they feel some sort of joy while they're doing it then that might be interesting although i mean the smile is so overused you never see a smile in an art gallery like everybody's always austere it's I think it, it takes the fine art value down, but like mm. you have to do a couple shots like that. But if the, if the smiles are condescending, it's horrible. And also like not everybody looks good when they smile. Some people look fantastic when they smile, but some people, when they do, it's like, you know, um, you, you get flashes of the devil. I, uh, I can't take a good smile photograph. I just can't. I'm sorry. My wedding um, is just full of, all these not great fake smiles, which is uh, iro- ironic because I'm, you know, I'm fucking happy that day. 
I was having a really good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why is your wedding photos my, fake smiles? My, <laughs> exactly. But that that's the thing. Like, I, I yeah. don't know. I just, I couldn't get into a, a genuine mindset with these images. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it's so funny that you mentioned that because when did smiles become the go-to thing? Because when, I don't know. when film first started, I, uh, I can't even remember where I read this, but they were told not to smile because obviously the the muscles in your face couldn't hold it for the length of time it took to take an image, so they had to yeah. relax their face to get a good image. Yeah, sometimes when I'm when I'm doing the film shots on the view cameras, it's like a ten second exposure. Yeah, I mean that's that's crazy. Try smiling for ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't. I I try not to now because I don't have a good smile for photographs. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, but nobody, nobody does. I mean, and, and honestly, when you smile, it's it's similar to what a dog does when he's afraid. You know, you're baring your teeth. You're like, Arr. you know. Um, mm. So it's it it can be a little bit. You know, I mean, it, 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 granted, you know, some sometimes it is like it is really cool. But I think that I think that a smile in a when you walk into um, uh, when you when you're looking at a serious piece of artwork. It's just like automatically just like disqualifies it for some reason. Yeah. And uh, I think it might, like you said, it might have to do with the length of time of the cameras, but I also think it might have to do with like socially. Um, I think that, uh, um, I think that our society has moved towards like, if you just pretend like everything's good, the problems won't actually be there. Just mm. smile, you know, kind of this era of hyper positivity. Um, I don't know. That's just a guess. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Selling a, a lifestyle for an image. That kind of the fake smile. Interesting. So you're shooting on film. How, how many photographs do you take when you're shooting with like kids and dogs and, and working with film? Because, well, first of all, I'm actually amazed that you do it because that's, that's a number one camera rule. Don't work with kids and dogs yeah. and you're doing it together, you madman. I love it. Yeah, not only... <laughs> Yeah, not not only am I doing it, but I'm doing it at the same time. Yeah, no, um, it's it's definitely a, a, a rare kind of insanity. I should have it looked at. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but, so, uh, right. So so how, so how many images do you? How many images? Yeah, for the people who don't know film whatsoever, like how many film is stored in in in, in your camera at one time? How many do you take? How many are successful? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, you get used to shooting a lot when you shoot with film just for that reason. Like you don't, if you don't know what you're getting, mm. um, you, you know, you overshoot and I almost feel like you end up getting pictures, better pictures when you shoot film for that reason. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, like, you know, when you, when you're shooting film, you know, you know, that, you know, that feeling when you've done a shoot and you, you, you can't wait to hook your camera up to the computer just to make sure that everything's good, you know? Oh yeah. Imagine that without being able to see the pictures, you know, it's just like, that takes it up a few notches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very nerve wracking. Shooting film is actually, is, is, is kind of like you, you don't sleep well until you get the film back. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, you tend to that. Okay. So the way the film cameras actually work. 35 millimeter film cameras have 36 exposures on a roll of film. So you can do a lot of shooting. You can blast through film and that's kind of how it's designed. You know, mm. it's designed to not be on a tripod, shaky camera. Um, medium format is designed around, you know, fashion photographers used it all the time. And the idea is you have 
one roll of film per pose or per idea, you know, and there are 12 exposures on a roll and you just, you shoot all 12 of them doing one thing. And then you put another roll on and you do something else. And, um, and at least that's how I did it because, um, it's a good way to gauge it. Um, I think I usually shoot between 12 and 20 rolls of film in a shoot a lot. Um, but at the time, and this was another reason I wanted to move to London. Um, another reason I wanted to shoot film is because if you have expensive things that cost you a lot of money, you can mark that up and, and charge even more because it's believable as a, as an expensive thing. And this was what, this is one of the reasons why uh, commercial film photographers were so devastated when things moved to digitals because they could mark up their film, they could mark everything up. And then with the extra money, they could pay for catering and, the people hiring the photographers would be like, this is my favorite photographer. He hired a caterer for us. He's the greatest. And it's like when they are actually the ones who paid for it, Um, you know, and uh, you know, so, so, you know, in terms of, in terms of shooting the 12 to 20 rolls of film, if you're doing the math, it's like to have it processed and scanned is about 30 bucks a roll. Yeah. Um, You know, so that's, you're spending three to $500 on your film. Um, if if you're telling them that it's three to five, if you're spending three to three to five hundred dollars on film, um, you could probably charge them a thousand bucks for it. Um, and if they're paying a thousand dollars for film, they'll spend another three or four thousand dollars on framed p- pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of it's kind of a way to you know, if you can get into that market, you can make a lot more money. Like when I was doing it right, when I had the the link to the um, to the maternity store. You know, uh, the studio was doing very well. I think for a few years it was, I I was pushing $300,000 a year in, in revenues. Um, and then it completely tanked after she went out of business. But, um, yeah, I mean the opportunity for making money as a photographer, if you hit the luxury market and you're the only guy that can do what it is that they're looking for, you can charge really good money. If you're just like every other photographer, then you eat shit. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah so. you definitely you definitely see that in the wedding industry with people who have film either as like their whole package as film or as an add-on. They can charge a very good premium for that, and it sets them apart. But it's because their overheads are huge. But it sets it gives them an excuse to charge high prices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's and that's like the one of the oldest tricks in the book. Like you're like, no, it's, it's going to cost me a lot. This is going to be really expensive for me. I'm just letting you know up front so that you're not freaked out when I send you the bill, I'm going to charge you exactly what it costs me times 10. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny that you, you, you talked about overshooting on film because to me, it kind of sounds counterintuitive doing that. I mean, obviously when you said it, it made sense, but the idea of like having, you know, 36 roles in a film, you're kind of limited you know, in that regard. So you almost can't shoot that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a contradiction because every time you hit the button, when you're shooting film, every time you hit the button, you hear a cash register, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it's expensive. Mm. Um, So yeah, you, you are like, I'm not going to take the picture on this, but at the same time, if you're shooting it, you know, um, just based on experience, you know, um, if you're actually, if someone's actually paying you to make the pictures, the fear of not not performing um, overrides everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's what kicks in. That's why you end up shooting more. Yeah. Um, 
And I think fear is much more motivational than just simply not having to pay for shooting. Um, you know, but I definitely, yeah, I mean, I, sh- I shoot, when I shoot digital, I definitely milk it. I'm like, ah, this is free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I'm just going to do a little Q&A reminder before we move on and actually talk to Jeremy about his shooting portrait sessions. Um, thank you very much for joining us on Clubhouse. We really do appreciate it. Obviously, if you could just like our guest, that would be awesome, or follow him rather. But you can also listen back to the Q&A section that will be at the end of this podcast if you support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash perspective by cinema we would also appreciate your support um however greg let's hear from our sponsor ashley with jack was designed from the ground up and is tailored specifically for creatives whether you provide a service like design development or photography or offer advice to clients with jack is for you it's focused on creatives insurance shouldn't be complicated so with jack has made every step easy you'll deal with one form and talk to one jack as you sign up get covered and move on with your day with jack is all about bespoke insurance for creatives simple that doesn't mean more forms or faff it means less it's not about endless features and stale service it's about one solid policy and the personal touch bye-bye unnecessary fuss Hello, creative, friendly insurance. Be a confident creative. Awesome. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Obviously, you have mentioned uh, that you have been diving into the world of virtual sessions. However, most of your work is studio-based. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a brave new world for me, but it's also really... It's, it, I've, been, I've been actually having to, to um, reposition my values as a photographer, (laughs) um, you know, based on the results that I've gotten from the virtual sessions. And um, one thing that I think that I've taken for granted is the fact that when you have, when you can make your own light, um, you can put it wherever you want, however you want. You can get real nuance with where you're placing your shadows and how to, how to do. And, you know, lighting in and of itself is a whole like, uh, um, a whole thing in and of itself. And it's, it's an amazing world. And, uh, you know, so when you're actually in the studio making it, there's, there's so many different toys and tools. And when you're in the environment, I'm still thinking in those terms. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but at the same time, you're in, you're not really at their house. You're at your house. They're at their house. Um, and I'll give you an example. Like I have a, I have a, I did a, um, pregnancy shoot, a maternity shoot with a woman, um, who lives in, uh, Kent and, um, she went to Camberwell College of Art and Design. She's an artist. She, she works as a, um, she makes documentaries. She understands, uh, location lighting mm-hmm. and, um, we had a conversation and I think the, the thing about the, the virtual shoots is, is that you can really scout the light. Like we called out, we just had a FaceTime chat and she showed me around her house. She's like, there's this window, there's that window. This is the South of the house. That's what, that's where the, the light comes in and, mm-hmm. and it travels through here and up my bedroom wall. And it's really cool. And I was like, great. Well, the day of the shoot, just give me a call and let's just keep an eye on the light. And, uh, so she called me and she's like, it's just starting to come in. It's not off the wall yet where we want it though. So, um, 
we'll wait. So uh, three, four hours later, she's like, okay, it's right now. Let's shoot. And the pictures were glorious because the light was perfect. Yeah. And, and the light was placed as if I were, if I were in a studio, that's exactly where I would have put it. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been raking down. There would have been a Rembrandt triangle under her left eye, you know, and so on, you know. Um, but on top of that, it's coming through a window. So it's picking up all the pain glass and all the, uh, you know, the imperfections and the, and the, uh, the shadows. And, um, and then when it went away, um, I was able to just use the ambient light coming in up on the window. Um, and this, it, instead of becoming a hard light, it became a big giant softbox. And, and again, I was like, okay, you have to turn yourself. So your head is facing the window rather than away from the, and, you know, and you can tweak them and fine tune them mm-hmm. and get it exactly like you like. Yeah. And then last weekend she was like, uh, I'm going to visit my, uh, going to my parents' house. They just did a loft conversion and there's all this crazy, um, stuff that they've done in there. And you want to do some more shooting? I was like, yeah. Um, and she's like 37 weeks now or 38 weeks now. Uh And it was also her birthday. So we did, we did all this other shooting. She just called me up, um, randomly and and was like, well, you want to shoot now? I was like, sure. So, you know, again, she hands the the phone to her husband. We, we shot for about an hour, hour and a half around her, um, her parents' house. We got pictures of her and her mom and her, her and her husband and their dog and, and it was, it was really easy and super convenient. Mm-hmm. Styling was easy. You know, she's like, I'm just going to switch, change into this because it's all there in her closet. And, you know, so what I'm, I'm realizing is that you have um, people in their intimate environments and they're actually playing an active role in the photography. So yeah. it's far more collaborative. And as a result, the intimacy is, is a lot more relaxed. Um, you know, and since then I've done probably – uh, 15, 15 shoots. Mm-hmm. I still have to edit a lot of them. And, um, each one is better than the last one. And yeah. I'm, I'm learning more about light and it's taking my work in a new direction. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes, when it comes down to it in photography, the end always justifies the means. Like yeah. what people are looking at is a picture on the wall and they don't care how that picture got on that wall. Mm. They just like it. They're looking at it because they like it. And, you know, ultimately you have to make a picture that they like looking at and how you do that is all you. Yeah. So, um, if I can, if I can get back in the dark room with these images and make a beautiful print, um, I'm happy. And then I also feel like because of those conveniences that you get from virtual shoot, it's probably going to have a life of its own afterwards. And, you know, I could totally see myself doing, doing this as my main thing and then doing studio photography as a side hustle because, (laughs) um, there's so much more possibilities to it. I mean, and, and I've, and I've loved every shoot that I've done. Like every time I get the film back from these shoots, I'm like, maybe I should sell the Hasselblad. I don't know. Like it's, (laughs) it's, I'm blown away. Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, I have to say, like looking at your digital stuff, uh, your virtual sessions, you do seem to take advantage of, you know, angles in particular differently from a lot of others. You know, you're 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 shooting lower, or you're you're shooting right above, or you know, you you really take advantage of you know, the whole spectrum of where you could be shooting. And obviously, you mentioned that you get other people involved to to hold the phone and stuff. Yeah, or even when I even even when I don't, I'm still thinking about composition. I mean, yeah. it comes back to the original thing of composition, and you know, um, my motherhood photography in the studio is the same thing. Uh-huh. It's the same kind of like 
I'm squinting and looking where the lines are, mm. you know? So, um, as I'm, as I'm looking at people and arranging them, I'm kind of imagining how, how it'll be. And, um, because most people just don't even are going from let's set everything up and then make a picture within that setup. I think that's a little bit limiting. I think you have to be able to tweak it. And if you have a tripod, you have to, you have to be able to be like, yeah, it's not working. Move it up, move it down. Um, and you know, also oftentimes you're limited by that. So you end up with a weird composition anyway, you know, like if they're leaning on the floor and shooting up at you, up, up at them, you're going to end up with a different perspective. But yeah, if somebody's holding the phone, you can, you can be really picky. You can be like, no, let's raise it up about four inches. Um, a little, you know, you can, you can, you can really, and, and, uh, as long as you got a guy that's down to do that, um, I've had situations, I had a couple situations where the guy holding the phone wasn't super keen on being there and it kind of, it didn't, it didn't help the situation. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, that only happened a couple of times. Uh huh. Hmm, interesting. Which is a lot since I haven't done that many, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Portraiture work. What is it that really appeals to you about it? Um, it's, it's this, you know, what, what really gets me, really motivates me to want to make this kind of work um, are the pictures themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, it's funny because, you know, being a guy who photographs women, mostly nude, there's there's a, a cultural assumption there, right? Um, people people generally speaking, when they see a guy photographing a woman who's nude, um, there's it's it's almost like a cliche in our culture. It's you know Cinemax after dark yeah. kind of. Um, but you know at at the end of the day, they're coming. They're the people that are actually sitting naked in front of me um, are coming in because they've seen something in my work that they want to recreate mm-hmm. they inspire them and it's usually a, an emotional decision they they see something and it, and it gives them an emotional charge and you know honestly i have the same reaction to the, when, when i've made a picture like that you get that emotional charge and that's very addictive um, I'm, I'm definitely a junkie for, you know, making pictures that, that, um, you know, have that kind of fine art value that can, that can, you know, elicit a, an emotional response. Um, but in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, that, that's, that's what motivates me, um, in terms of why, why it works for photography. I think that, um, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's a topic that I am super comfortable with because I have three daughters and a wife and um, I tend to uh, relate better to women than I do to men, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is because I, I, I don't get into sports. Um, I, uh, my hobbies are um, reading history and astrology. Uh, you know, um, history is not necessarily a feminine thing, but astrology definitely is. Um, I, uh, I love art, art history. Um, art is actually what motivates my work. And a lot of times that's what I talk, talk to my clients about, you know, um, that's the common ground are are these sorts of things that we're interested in, that I'm interested in. 
you know, more intellectual things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like when, when we're talking about, you know, um, the things of being a parent, that's totally my life. Like I can totally relate to these people. I think <laughs> moms are my people, you know? So I yeah. feel like very at home when I'm working with them, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm working with, with any other subject, I, I almost have nothing to talk about. You know, a guy, a, a lawyer comes in for a headshot, like, stand there, hold your nameplate and get the fuck out of my studio. Like there's nothing really to say, you know? (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the way you describe yourself is how I would describe myself as well. I've always, um, I just didn't, I wasn't attracted to the, the kind of stereotypical guys things, you know, playing rugby at the weekends or whatever it may be. I've always, and, and, and I've always had more girlfriends than guy friends. So, yeah, and I, and I wonder how much of that kind of bleeds into my work as well as a filmmaker. But Probably. I mean, because if you're inspired by the arts, I mean, there's that, that's definitely the feminine side. But yeah, um, yeah, definitely kindred spirit for sure. Mm. Well, let's, I, I want to talk about your studio setup for a minute, because for the people who haven't shot film before, like, let's talk about your setup, the kind of nuts and bolts, your gear, as boring as that is. I want to give as much information to those who haven't spent a lot of time with film gear in particular. So what's your studio setup like? What's my studio setup? Um, okay. So in my studio, it's funny because I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people get this stuff, but a lot of the stuff that I've gotten, I've got based on getting a good deal. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's expensive. Like studio gear is like ridiculously expensive. Like if, if money were no object, I would probably have pro photo lights, you know, but it is, it's an object. It's constantly an object. So, um, and the best, the best lighting from the past, uh, has always been Ellen Chrome. They're amazing. Uh, they built Swiss lighting, like the Swiss, they, they build really good stuff, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, so I have the Ellen Chrome lights and you can in the studio, but they also have a really hot modeling light. Like one of the, one of the things that I was attracted to was that I have a 600 watt modeling light because I actually prefer to use continuous light. So I'd say that anybody who's interested in learning about light, I think that's actually where you should start because yeah. when I was in photo school, the first year they wouldn't even let us use strobes. It was all continuous light. And, you know, it's so much easier to work with because you can see what's going on. Yeah. Like strobes are a pain in the ass because you have to have a lot of experience with them to know you have to work backwards from your experience rather than what's actually in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's just jarring to a lot of people. And um, it's just jarring to me as well. I actually more look at the modeling light than anything. Um, so rather than buying a bunch of strobe equipment, I would say either get a cheap. Now, for my location stuff, I have um, Paul Buff has a, uh, um, they're called alien bees. Those are the cheap versions of their lights. I think they're a couple hundred bucks for, um, uh, a small light that you could fit in your suitcase and they're cheap enough. So if they break, you just replace it. And also I've sent it to them for repairs and the repair is like 10 bucks. Like they really are, you know, economical. They do the job perfectly. They, They do what they're supposed to do and they have a really hot modeling light. So you could use, you could use them, it's an LED light, but it's still, you can shoot at um, 400 speed at a 125th of a second um, at F28. So um, 
that's pretty good for continuous light source. Mm. It's actually really good with a modifier. Um, and um, I basically, as far as modifiers go, I use mostly um, Octobanks. Um, occasionally I'll use Umbrella, but they just put the light everywhere. Um, you know, but I've been actually liking hard light, unmodified light lately. Um, yeah. And a lot of that is just, you know, that can be, it can be, but it's much more difficult to work with. It's people, it's harder to make people look good with hard light source. Um, camera gear. Um, I, I started with, um, a Hasselblad, um, and, uh, Nikon 35 millimeter camera equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along the way I picked up for, again, the whole like cheap things on eBay. So it's, it's bad. Um, I found, a Leica Flex with a 60 millimeter macro on it. I like a R. It's, it's there. And, um, I took pictures with it and they're all blurry. I'm like, what's going on? I took the Leica Flex into my, and he's like, oh, the mirror is out of adjustment. It'd be more money than the camera's work to fix, but your lens is okay. <laughs> so, um, I got a, another camera body and was using this, this Leica lens, the 60 millimeter macro and was blown away. It's an amazing, you know, so, so since then that lens has been welded on my camera. And, um, so my digital camera is based on what, you know, I got a Nikon Z7 and the reason is because I can take all this like weird menagerie. Like I have for street photography, I bought a Leica M with an old, like 35 millimeter from the fifties. And I have, um, I bought another Leica R lens at 28 millimeter for like street photography as well. And then I have Hasselblad lenses and then a couple of Nikon lenses from my old, like, you know, so I bought a camera that fits all those lenses. I don't own a single modern autofocus lens. Mm-hmm. I want to get one eventually, but I haven't had a real need for it. So, yeah. Um, you know, and as far as like equipment goes, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's all sort of pieced together and without any sort of like, uh, plan or reason. So I wouldn't hang your hat on anything I just said. <laughs> I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure that I've given any any real information. I just answered it in a long-winded way without really saying anything. So no, that was it's all some <laughs> some good sounding bits of kit. But as primarily filmmakers, myself and Simon, and mm. having not really shot in studio, a lot of it's like unknown to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. with your with your work, a lot of it it looks like is black and white. There's there's not a lot of color de- delivered. So are you primarily shooting on a certain type of black and white film? And then also with your digital work or your virtual sessions, are you trying to match those virtual shot, eh, digital shots to that black and white film? Are you trying to almost well, emulate it? Um, I don't think I can help myself. I mean, that's the problem is, is that I have so much experience with, it, with digital film that when, when I make the ad- adjustments and try to bring it back. That's what's in the back of my mind. So um, I don't think I know any better as far as that goes, but color on the other hand is a brave new world for me. And I love color. I think mm-hmm. color is me not using color had more to do with the fact that it was um, h- harder to make a uh, artistic image with colored film, you know, and that's changed a, li- a little bit. I-, I did use color Polaroids sometimes, but um, it's just much more, just much more um, difficult to make a print with the color. But now that now that it's digital and all the prints are coming out of inkjet printers, like it's it's um, there's a lot that you can do. And plus, you have have the ability to manipulate the image however you want. 
Um, so, I mean, and I will go back and look at, you know, um, old like National Geographic photographers from the um, 80s uh, use the Kodachrome film all the time. And so I'll try to emulate Kodachrome. Like you can't get the film and you couldn't process it even if you could because it has a special process. Yeah. Um, all my favorite films are gone. They've been discontinued. Even Triax has been replaced with new Triax, which is like new Coke, but film. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, and uh, that dates me. Um, <laughs> it does, but it's um, fine. It's fine. So um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's, in terms of, in terms of the films to get, um, I would urge anybody out. I mean, if, if even one person went out and, got, and messed around with a view camera and played with that Polaroid film, it could change the way that you think about photography. It could, it could really open up a lot of doors. I would recommend that to anybody because you can get a four by five camera for a song. People are giving them away. Um, you can get an old press camera, like, um, like a speed graphic. Um, uh, the Linhoffs are the best, but um, they're expensive. Um, but you know, you can you can get you can get an old rail camera, and then you know it's it's a pain in the ass to set up. But like, if you can get it set up and do the do the prints, or grab a thirty five millimeter camera and just get a, a roll of um, Tri-X. If I want grain, I use uh, T Max thirty two hundred and have it processed at either 3,200 or 6,400 is even better. It'll be contrasty, but there's nothing wrong with that. I actually like contrast. Um, And what you're you're really going for is grain. So you have them just leave it in the soup for longer. If you want grainy, like the grainy stuff that I do, that's T-Max 3,200. And basically I go back and forth between the T-Max 3,200 and the Polaroid film. Um, Everything else I don't really bother with. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use a really sharp, I've, I've, I've messed around with rolly films. Those can be a lot of fun. Like if you guys want to look for the rolly films, they can be, they can, they can have interesting. I think some of them are, you know, bring in the infrared spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think infrared film is really fun. You have to get the right filter, like research it. Mm-hmm. Um, infrared is great for, um, as long as you can't see the people's eyes because the eyes, infrared eyes look like, um, children of the corn. It's not good. Um, <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> oh man. I had no idea. So, so yeah, like sadly, sadly all my favorite stuff is gone though. My yeah. favorite film emotions of history. Are some, so. are some films coming back though? Cause obviously films kind of reached a, a, a point where it's getting really popular. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean like if you like key grain films, uh, and what that means is the grains aren't just dots. They're actually shapes that fit within each other. So it gives kind of a sharper look to it. Mm. Um, if you like key grain films and they, they, they make a beautiful sharp image, but my problem with those films that have been around forever and they're still in production is that they almost look like they're from a digital camera. Like the idea to shoot films to get away from digital, right? You know, so if you want it to look different, I would go for the grainy films. Mm. Um, and the one grainy film that they have and have had around forever is that same one that I keep coming back to. It's the T-Max 3200. Ilford 3200 is almost identical. Yeah. They're the same thing. Um, Ilford is a little bit sharper. And that's why I used the, the Kodak because I want it to be grainy. Um, Kodak's a little bit grainier. Um, Ilford has done their job a little bit better. 
So yeah. I like Kodak better. Yeah, that's cool. I've yeah, I've used Aylfords, but um, I I wouldn't really. I'm still early days with film, so I wouldn't really know the difference. Plus, um, I also like to home develop my black and white with a, a, a one solution uh, <laughs> do it yourself at home kind of thing. So that that's kind of coming out um, inconsistent. But yeah, that can be a lot. That can be a lot of fun. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it is great. I'm, it's, I'm, I mean, mess, message me. I'll, 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 if you're having problems, I can troubleshoot stuff with you. Ooh, okay. That goes for anybody. I'm, I obviously love the sound of my own voice. So just like hit me up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually want to talk a little bit about your, well, about all your images actually, because you've got a really interesting approach to motion that I think. Oh yeah. A lot I use motion. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And uh, I, I think I was, I was having a look at your Polaroid stuff and that's when I, I spotted it first. Uh, I don't know why I was there, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I quite like this. Cool. Okay, so the, and then, and the then technical I'm... side of that, uh-huh. the technical side of movement is, is basically um, if you have the shutter open for um, enough time for somebody to move in it, it records that. Mm. So, um, And generally speaking, that time is if you're less than an eighth of a second. If your shutter speed is less than an eighth of a second, you get, I mean, you can, you can pan at a, the best, the best time they say for panning. Like if you're going to take a picture of somebody running and you want them to be sharp, but the background to be blurring behind them, um, they say a 15th of a second or a 30th of a second is good. You can pan somebody moving across your frame at a 60th of a second, but it won't have that much blur. Mm-hmm. But if you really want movement and you want it to look like it's ghosty like that, yeah, I love it. it's an, eighth of a second or less even. Mm. And um, the Polaroids, because the um, when you're using a view camera, those lenses um, wide open are like F8. Um, and I'm using my modeling light. Mm. And um, I've stopped it down because I'm not 100% sure that it's, you know, um, the lens performs a little bit better at F16. Yeah. So that's a 10 second, 10 to 20 second exposure. Um, so what I tend to do is to take that, um, you know, it's inherent in the process. That's your exposure time, uh-huh. whether you like it or not, you can try to make a sharp picture out of that. Um, good luck with that. Or you can <laughs> yeah. go with it and try to try to make something cool out of the movement, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, it's a feedback loop. You try one, you're like, that was bullshit. And you try another one. You're like, okay, that's getting better. And then like, you know, so it's, it's, it's something that you can, it's, it's just another thing you can put in your tool belt. And people are always so set on doing their photography, a specific one size fits all way Mm. that it ends up being formulaic and boring. And I don't know how they, how they continue to be entertained by that, you know? So I, I feel like photography is wonderful in that there's always, if you have an ADHD, like I do, like, it's a good thing. Yeah, there's all kinds of different stuff you can do. Mm-hmm. So the the question I have to ask is: Is the shots uh, sorry are the shots that are on your website intentional? Are they just like beautiful mistakes, or have you hit the shot at a very specific time to be able to capture it? it sometimes, sometimes uh, I have an, an idea of what it's going to look like, but I don't ever really know exactly what it's going to look like. But I'm yeah. definitely working backwards from a general conceptuality because you have to have. You can't just go, all right, I'm going to leave the shutter open. I'll be standing in the back of the room drinking my coffee and looking at my phone. Just do whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you have to have an idea of what you're going for. Yeah. You know, 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it definitely a lot of those are intentional. There's, there's been a couple of times where the film has failed me and I thought that it failed me and I set it aside. Like one of the leading shots in my portfolio is a woman breastfeeding. And one of the cool things about it is that I took the picture and it, it, it didn't like when I pulled the dark slide, the paper came out all the way and I had to put it back in there. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is shot. This isn't working. Mm-hmm. I pulled it and I'm like, Oh, lucky if we get anything. And then I looked at it and I'm like, Oh, there's nothing there. And then I, I was cleaning up the studio and I came across it and it had processed. And so I like threw it in the, in the fix and then washed it and dried it and thought, well, okay, maybe there's something. And the fact that it had been thrown in the sink and had all the gook, you know, all the, all the imperfections from being, you know, totally abused yeah. you know, actually ended up feeding into the picture, but I wouldn't recommend trying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely didn't do it on purpose. So <laughs> that is awesome. That's one of the glories of film. I have to say, like w- when you're playing around with all these different things, if you make a mistake, sometimes the mistake can come out actually pretty interesting. And I really like yeah. that, you know? So yeah. You, you don't never really know what you're going to get. Like, yeah. You don't really know what's happening. Like you haven't, you're always working on an idea, but like there's nothing concrete. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, I think that's, that's one of the ways that it informs your work. Like, if you shoot film, you'll end up with different pictures for that reason, because, you know, you take out that instant feedback loop and it changes the way you think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, so I actually wanted to to talk a little bit about censorship with you because I, I want you to talk about what it's like being a male photographer, um, taking images of, of nude women. Have you had any bad experiences and how do you even overcome Oh, it's constant, constantly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, there's always sort of like a tongue in cheek kind of like, Oh, I know what you do. Um, with, with, with people. And I'm always like, no, you don't. Um, you know, and, and, you know, so, so you get that sort of like, I feel like our culture is very immature when it comes to nudity anyway. I mean, and that's really what it comes down to. You're taking things that, shouldn't be that big of a deal and making them into um, something that it really isn't. And um, when you're around it, when you have, when, when you're around women who are breastfeeding all the time, you know, you realize that, you know, that's actually what the boobs were made for. You know, that's like, they, they weren't made for, for the, uh, you know, so that, you know, the guys could have another toy to play with. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's one of those things that has sort of worked its way into our culture mm. for whatever reason. And, um, I, I do feel like it's a, um, Anglo-Saxon thing, um, in a lot of respects. Um, cause it was the same in England as it is in America. And I think it's the same in Australia. Um, but you go across the channel and the temperature gets above, uh, you know, 15 everybody's stripping down and like becoming a human sundial mm-hmm. um like nobody gives gives a, a rat's ass um in in mainland and in pretty much a lot of other places and there's definitely some conservative places in the world but um and it comes down to um you know the sort of puritanical um association of uh the human body with uh sinfulness and that sort of has stuck in with our culture, even though um, 
you know, we've sort of become, we think that we've become enlightened, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that are still sticking around. And part of the problem is, is sort of compounded by the fact that everybody's on the same social media network on the same platform. And the person that started that platform started it as a hot or not site for his frat boy buddies. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. I don't know if people know most, I think it's common knowledge, but most people may or may not know that um, he started Facebook was so that people could look at faces and instantly, instantly say whether the woman is hot or not. You know, it it was basically designed to humiliate women from the start, you know? So that's, that's what we're going into this. And then you combine that with the fact that we live in a uh, uptight Judeo Christian, um, world that is is uh you know feels that um it's some somehow the human body is somehow sinful and and that seeing a nipple always a female nipple always equals sex because it doesn't and um now that's the platform that i have to put all my stuff up on and you know so you have you have all this uh i mean uh for example um if you go on TikTok, and it's and, and, and it's cross also, and and you know do a search on the word the song, how does my dick taste? Um, you'll get all these scantily clad women, you know, dancing to a song about getting um, penetrated in every orifice, you know, while her boyfriend or husband is not there, and um, you, you know the, the song could not be more about sex. Supposedly, that's what they're trying to protect children from. And they're doing it by censoring pictures of women breastfeeding, but allowing that stuff to stay up. So, you know, obviously, you have to question what are they really doing? What are the, what is the real motivation behind it? So I, I feel like this is going to be a struggle for artists in general or, or anybody in the world with any sort of common sense about the issue. Like, really, I mean, majority of people will look at a picture that I make and be like, yeah, it's a woman breastfeeding. What's the big deal? Kids will look at it and say, yeah, that's a woman breastfeeding. What's the big deal? Yeah. Like that's, 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 you know, so, um, that's our starting point. Mm. We're starting in a, in a world that doesn't get what we do. And on top of that, there's this sort of assumption, this sort of like being a male photographer, like I was talking about earlier, like if you're a male photographer, it's automatically assumed that, you know, if you're photographing nudes of women, you're doing it out of a, um, you satisfy some sort of sexual urge of your own. Yeah. Um, I, I even had a guy walk into my studio. I shot his wedding and he, I guess he thought he was like chummy enough to say this to me. He's like, um, and he was totally serious. He wasn't kidding. He's like, so I've, my wife and I have always wondered, do you have a pregnancy fetish? I'm like, because I do naked shots of pregnant women. And, um, like I didn't even know what to say to him. I was like, well, for starters, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm. Um, but to follow up that, like, can you at least like look at the pictures for a second and like do some thinking and processing and you can see like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's so just incredibly stupid mm. that we're even having this conversation, but you know, that's, that's for a lot of, that's how a lot of things are. And in, in, when you're dealing with the power structure, you know, and you start to say, well, why are they doing that? Um, and and uh, the answer is because um, the people who are running the show 
are pinheads. Um, and that's what it, that's what it comes down to. Like, and until, until the, the, um, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg are willing to have a real conversation that doesn't involve them just, you know, um, repeating the same thing over and over again and thinking that that makes it true. Um, you know, we are, we, we are trying to protect people from, you know, of, of conservative, all cultures across the world from sexual exposure. It's like, no, you're not, you are not protecting anybody. You don't give a shit about protecting anybody. You know, what you want to do is you want to be able to write software that understood that, um, that solves a problem that, that deals with something that can't be solved with software. It's you're dealing with intangibles, you know, when it comes to whether or not something is sexual, that's an inference that you can't make by telling a computer how many crosswalks there are in the picture. It's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And it's a social construct. Like you can't legislate taste. It's something that we have created as human beings. And we don't even know how or why we created, but we it's there and there's no reason for it. It's only there because we've said that it's there. And, um, you know, because it's been socially constructed as such, um, uh, and because it's such a pain in the ass for me, I want us to try to socially deconstruct that by actually showing women, um, in situations where, you know, they feel beautiful and they're doing the pictures because they feel beautiful, not because they're trying to impress a man or because they're trying to adhere to some sort of social ideal of what beauty should be, but rather because they feel beautiful with who they are doing the things that they're doing with their children, which is like feeding them and, 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 you know, sharing the love between them. And, you know, that in and of itself is worth celebrating in a permanent way with the picture. Mm. And, um, you know, so for, 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 for it to be perceived as anything but that, you know, for them to even say that it's even, even insinuate that it's sexual is insulting to me. It's yeah. deeply insulting. And it's, and it's, it's not just insulting, but it's, it's wrong. It's not true. You know? Yeah. Um, I got a, I got a soapbox on the issue. You can probably figure that out. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, thank you very much for, for joining us and giving us your time. Um, it's a, a, an honor and a pleasure to have been introduced well, to you I, and your work. And I feel the same. I feel the same. I feel it's an absolute honor that you guys had me. So I really appreciate you going out of your way to bring me on to this podcast and actually, you know, wanting to know what I have to say. I mean, that, that means a lot to me. So I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me up, guys. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. And um, yeah, don't change your name to Bob. Uh, okay and to our clubhouse listeners thank you very much for joining us live and if you're listening back to this thank you very much we hope you enjoyed this episode jeremy where can people find you online um i'm actually in the process of redoing my website but it's my name jeremy simon photo not Mm -hmm. photography but just photo.com um and that's also the same on Instagram. It's Jeremy Simon photo at Instagram. And actually that's where my best work is. Um, I have a Vogue portfolio. There's a link to that. Yeah. Um, and, and, we, and we didn't and actually, even talk about we, that. We didn't even talk about it, but um, yeah, I can, but you, everybody's probably sick of hearing my voice, but uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're cautious of your time. So well, yeah, Ke- Kelly, Kelly actually um, was, was, uh, Earlier on in the pandemic, 
you know, and, and, and Kelly's very, um, you know, she gets very hyper motivated sometimes about stuff. And she's like, everybody needs to be joining this Vogue thing. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, um, started, started entering images. And it's basically what, what, uh, they decided Vogue Italia decided to do a place where they host, um, the portfolios of photographers that they accept and they do portfolio submissions pretty much every week. And you can submit two pictures into your portfolio and they decide whether it gets in. And then as a subsidiary of that, they post the pictures in their own feeds via a best of picture and a picture of the day. Um, and um, it's, it's all based on the editor, um, Alicia got, Galvignano is that part of my Italian? Um, she's she's a um, Milanese editor of uh, Vogue Italian, mm-hmm. and uh, so so anyway, she has she has all that uh, um, stuff on her feed. So she promotes a lot of a lot of photographers. So it's basically a weekly contest, mm. and everybody's trying to get in either that picture of the day or best of. But the result of it is in doing that they accept only the pictures that fit their aesthetic. So the pictures that they've chosen that I've accept, that I've entered to them um, are, are interesting. Um, and I actually think that it's a really good selection of my work because, you know, maybe not the way that I would have edited it, but at the same time, it's, it's a, uh, um, it's a good uh, cross section. Yeah. Um, and it's also a good way to waste time. Like if you want to go look at other photographers and see what they're doing, there's so many amazing photographers on there that, that uh, that could easily eat up an afternoon or a day, even just going through all the different work, yeah. um, some incredible stuff. So yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just had to point everyone's attention to that. That is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and so we're all trying to outdo each other in terms of like how many Vogue bestos have you gotten? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Kelly's in the lead. Um, it's a it's a big dick contest, and um, yeah. and I think Kelly's think, got the biggest. I've got the biggest. got the biggest, Kelly. Sarah's, Sarah's is the nicest. We're not sure what Jeremy's is. It's too personal to ask. <laughs> oh, always lowering the tone. I love it. <laughs> Hilarious, Kelly. Oh, awesome, uh, awesome. Well, thank you very much. People can find us at cinematefilms.co.uk on Instagram and Facebook at forward slash Cinemate Films. We hope you have loved this episode. And if you did, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate. For as little as a pound, you can support the podcast and its creation. And for as little as a price of coffee, you can get the Q&As and the roundtable discussions and any more bonus content that we create that will be there as well. If you don't have any money to give, that is absolutely fine. You are still our best friends. You can, of course, hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast and get it there for free. Maybe just leave a review and um, we'll give you a shout out if you do. However, in the meantime, enjoy your life. (laughs) 